Broadcasting from the Cross Politics Studios in Moscow, Idaho. This is Campus Podcast. I'm your host, Keith Darrell. This is episode six Christian nationalism, postmillennialism, preterism, Dr. Jim Hamilton's This Generation. Welcome, everybody, to the Campus Preacher Podcast. I am your host, Keith Darrell. We will be discussing Christian nationalism, postmillennialism, preterism, and Dr. Jim Hamilton's This Generation. The reason we're going to be discussing Jim Hamilton's This Generation, I believe he's a professor at Southern Baptist. Theological Seminary, and he's written some things that I appreciate. He has a treatment of uh, Isaiah 7, I believe it is, in The Virgin Birth, which I think is pretty good. He has a book on typology, which uh, I've only kind of skimmed through and listened through parts of it. It's also pretty good. But his Sunday school is doing uh, kind of a critique of postmillennialism, preterism, and kind of the serrated edge, and maybe Christian nationalism in the mix. And um, so what I want to do is I, I list his treatment of postmillennialism and preterism, and I just think it's terrible. For a guy who is smart and a guy who is a professor, it's the sort of thing where, like, you should make a better argument uh, than that. So anyway, I'm going to get to that at the end. But the first thing I want to do is kind of discuss a little bit of Christian nationalism, because that kind of blows up here or there in the news, or at least on the news, The my Twitter feed. And so what I want to do is is I just started thumbing through Stephen Wolf's book. And and so I have not read it. So so that's never a good thing to say as you're offer up a, a brief critique. Um, but it's one of those things where you, you read it and you're kind of like, okay, I don't necessarily uh, disagree with uh, Christian nationalism. Hopefully everybody, in a sense, wants everything to be Christian. If you remember when Kanye West came out with his Jesus King album, he, uh, in that he was on the Jimmy Kimmel show, and Jimmy Kimmel up asking him, so are you a Christian artist now? And he goes, I'm a Christian everything. So anyway, I want everything to be Christian. I want kings to be Christians. I want uh, husbands, wives, you know, whatever you can come up with, artists. Uh, I want them all to be Christians. And so one of the things that uh, Stephen Wolf, how he defines Christian nationalism is this. Uh, Christian nationalism is a totality of national action consisting of civil laws and social customs conducted by a Christian nation as a Christian nation in order to procure for itself both earthly and heavenly good in Christ, um, which is – it's a little bit vague because I, I may have missed it, but I don't see him defining actually what a nation is at any point. Um, but in broad sense, do I want a society to recognize Christian norms, Christian ideals? Do I want that uh, to be everybody? And one of the things that we do have in kind of Prior to um, the Enlightenment, essentially, was you always had some sort of almost yoking between, uh, quote-unquote, religion and the state. So even Plato and Aristotle and the Roman Catholic Church, they were odd millennials, but they gave us, in a sense, Christendom because they kind of saw the church as being the soul of the state. So the idea of the church influencing the state and kind of being the soul of the state has always been there in Western culture from Aristotle to uh, Plato, Aristotle, on down through Augustine into Christendom. And then obviously you started to have a break with that with the Enlightenment. And so uh, there's a sense which I can appreciate what Stephen Wolf is trying to do. He's trying to recover um, basically historic Protestant and historic um, Christian uh, statecraft or, or, or politics. And and so I don't think that's all bad, but as I was, I was listening, uh, uh, listening, as I was reading it, he, he ends up saying this. He's talking about the need for a Christian prince. And I was talking to someone before uh, recording this podcast, and he'd say in person he kind of nuances it, but I just think it's kind of a weird thing. He says this, I cannot conceive of a true renewal of Christian commonwealths without great men leading their people to it. 
nor can we expect the national will to find its end through an administration led by wonks and regulators. So I will primarily use Prince as the mediator of the nation's will for itself. This title denotes both an executive power, one who administers the laws, and personal eminence in relation to the people. The Prince is the first of his people one whom the people can look upon as father or protectorate of the country. I'm not calling for a monarchical regime over every civil polity and certainly not an autocracy, though I envision a measure and theocratic Caesarism. The prince as a world shaker for our time who brings a Christian people to self-consciousness and who, in his rise, restores their will for their good. Prince is a fitting title for a man of dignity and greatness of soul who will lead a people to liberty, virtue, godliness, to greatness. So, to be honest, I could never imagine the Apostle Paul writing the Roman church, uh, dear saints in Rome, we need a uh, a Caesar, theocratic uh, Caesarianism, Caesarism. Uh, We need that. I could never imagine Paul writing that. Because what you have going on in the gospel is the antithesis between Jesus Christ being Lord and the Roman Empire essentially putting forth Caesar being Lord. And Jesus is like, don't be like the Gentiles. So when it comes to – and I think that's even what the gap is oftentimes. When it comes to the idea of like postmillennialism, when it comes to the idea of Christendom, I doubt there are too many people in, in very broad terms um, who, would, who really don't want everything submitted to Christ. I can't imagine too many Christians thinking, oh, no, uh, Christianity is just about my soul, has nothing to do with this world. I don't want any influence on politics. I can't imagine too many Christians who kind of begin to really understand the gospel to really think that. But when you read something like this, you can see where people are like, mm-hmm. this is this is a little weird. And the reason I think it's weird ultimately is because I do think what's going on in the first century context is the Roman Empire says Caesar is Lord, and the Christians come along and say, nope, Jesus is Lord. So you, you kind of have two approaches to lordship in this issue. And one of the things I want to get at, first of all, is – uh, going back to the first century, uh, Caesars were identified as being the son of God. Regarding Julius Caesar, and these things are taken from uh, Craig Evans and his commentary on Mark. It says, Julius Caesar from 48 to 44 BC, an inscription from Ephesus describes him as the manifest God from Eris and Aphrodite and the universal savior of human life. Also the from Carthia, if I'm pronouncing it right, the Carthian people honor the God and emperor and savior of the inhabited world, Gaius Julius Caesar, son of Gaius Caesar. There are many more such inscriptions from this period. Also, um, Caesar Augustus from 30 BC to 14 AD. Emperor Caesar Augustus, son of God. Emperor Caesar Augustus, God from God. Emperor Caesar Augustus, savior and benefactor. An inscription from Prien celebrates Augustus's birth as the birthday of the god. And then finally, I'll just read one more regarding Tiberius from 14 AD to 37. Emperor Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of God, and Emperor Tiberius Caesar knew Augustus, son of God, Zeus, the liberator. And so what you essentially have, if you're appealing to Caesarism, is another religion. And you and think of Jesus' words, don't be like the Gentiles who lord over them. We are not to be like the Caesars. And I think even God himself becoming a man and washing her, our feet is in radical contrast to these Caesars. So this idea of wanting a new Caesar or a Christian prince is going to be like this, I just think is a misdirected hope. Now, within that, uh, there, there is also something, though, that I that I think that he's kind of getting at, that I think is important that we often miss, and that's in Matthew chapter 28, 
when we consider the Great Commission. So even one of the gaps here is you think of American evangelicals and they're about saving souls. We don't want people to go to hell. And then you kind of have the rise of people who are like, nope, it's justice, social justice, and God cares about this world. So the question really is like, what is the gospel and what is taking place in the gospel? Why did God create the heavens and the earth? Did he create the heavens and the earth just so heaven, hell can be played out? Or does he have a goal, a teleological purpose for the heavens and the earth? And in last week's podcast, we basically sought to lay out a little bit that God has a goal from the original creation to the uh, new creation in Revelation 21 and 22. There's a teleological purpose beginning with Adam, Jesus being the last Adam that will be fulfilled. And that's fulfilled in the Great Commission. And the Great Commission is not just about saving souls. And this is the place where I think postmillennialism is essentially right. And without getting into some of the exegetical debates, we'll just look at uh, the call of the Great Commission. It says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Now, what we need to realize, first of all, is that the Great Commission is not a brand new thing. Uh, the Great Commission, I believe, is intertwined with Adam back in Genesis 1.21, where he and uh, Eve are given dominion over the earth, and they're supposed to subdue the earth. And so last week we discussed how uh, you had the land of Eden, you had the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve would take that garden and make it out into the rest of the earth. So they're going to make the whole world like a temple. I also believe that's what's going on here in Matthew chapter 28. And the reason I think that is because Matthew chapter 28 is interconnected with the decree of Cyrus back in 2 Chronicles 36. And so I'm going to read 2 Chronicles 36, starting in verse 20. So if you remember, the Israelites were in rebellion to God. They go into exile. And so they go off onto Babylon. Babylon comes in, sacks Jerusalem, I think in 605 and 586, it actually, the temple's destroyed. And they're in exile. And in, uh, I can't remember the exact year, uh, but Caesar, uh, Caesar, um, Cyrus comes along and he gives a decree. It says this, it took, uh, he took them into exile in Babylon. Those who had escaped from the sword and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the king of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed Sabbath. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. Verse 22. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord may be fulfilled uh, for the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia so that he made a proclamation throughout all the kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, okay, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. So you think of Jesus standing there, talking to his disciples, he says, uh, all authority under heaven and earth has been given to me. Cyrus says, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. So Cyrus, in a way, is an anointed Messiah. And I'll proof text this here in a second. He's an anointed Messiah, and he's saying, all authority on earth has been given to me by the God in heaven. One of the radical differences is Jesus saying, all, all authority in heaven and on earth is mine. And he goes this, and he charged them to build, uh, uh, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judea. And then even remember the call of Jesus uh, when he sends out his disciples, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. And so you have the, the, the Israelites 
are in exile and they're kind of, you know, diaspora. And now what's happening is Cyrus, king of Persia, saying, now go up to Jerusalem and build a temple. Now, all of this ties into our discussion of post-millennialism and everything else from this standpoint is uh, what you have going on in the Old Testament. So if you think of the beginning of Genesis, God creates the heavens and the earth, and Second Chronicles is actually the end of the Hebrew Bible. So, you know, we have, I believe it's Malachi is the last book in our, our Bible. But in the Hebrew Bible, it's Second Chronicles. And how does it end? Them leaving exile, going up into Jerusalem. And there's a man named John Salehammer, and, and he argues that the theology of this, of the, 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 old, the Hebrew Bible ending in this way, is it's basically saying exile still ain't over. Even though they're going back to the land, even though they're going to build a temple, they're still waiting for the ultimate anointed one. Cyrus is an anointed one. And one of the places we get that is in Isaiah chapter 45. And this is what, even one of the things that's kind of like really fascinating. When you sit down and you read the Bible, and if you're immersed in the Old Testament, so often what we are doing as evangelicals is pietism. And it's almost otherworldly. And like, oh, we just want to be to heaven and kind of have like your eyes lifted to heaven and you're kind of um, otherworldly. Whereas like so much of what's going on with the prophets and everything else is very uh, – worldly in the sense of political and rulers and kings. And so it says this at the end of chapter 44 of Isaiah, and this was written 200 years before Cyrus became king. So even just think of the prophetic element of it. He says, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. All right. So the Lord calls Cyrus his shepherd. He shall fulfill my purposes, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built. And of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to his Messiah, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. So what we have going on here, think of the Great Commission. Jesus, all authority in heaven and on earth is mine. Go ye therefore into all nations, make disciples, teach them to observe all things they've commanded you. Cyrus, all authority on earth is mine. All of you disciples, everybody who loves Yahweh, Go up to Jerusalem. And so part of the contrast is this, and, and this is how it ties into aspects of preterism. Last week, what we discussed is that the temple's coming down. So Matthew chapter 24, and what's going on is basically Israel has become a Babylon. Israel itself has become an Egypt. Israel needs to be destroyed. And not only are disciples going to go up to Jerusalem and rebuild it, but we're going to go into all the world, make disciples of all nations. So you and I today, I'm in Idaho. I am now the temple of the living God. And so we're going into all the world and we're building God's temple. Adam and Eve were to spread that temple into all the earth. Jesus, the last Adam's going to spread that temple into all the earth. And that's what we're doing through the power of the Spirit. So Jesus is greater than Cyrus. So when you read the Old Testament, you should realize that here we have the king of Persia, who is a Gentile, uh, is actually God's Messiah and God's anointed uh, from Isaiah chapter End of 44, verse 28, and verse 1 in chapter 45. I just think that's pretty important to uh, realize because we often kind of confuse things on, on kind of the nature of the political. And so when we think of the Great Commission, it's not primarily saving souls and asking people if they want to invite Jesus into their heart, saying go to heaven. It is a political message. So Psalm chapter 2, and this times in Psalm chapter 2, uh, and all of this ends up being fulfilled in Cyrus as well, but it says, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against his anointed. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. 
he who sits in heaven's last, the whole Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I've set my king in Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be warned, be wise, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling, kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in your way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And the reason I read that is this. When you think of Christian salvation, um, we should— at one level, think of it in terms of politics. Uh, we should think of it in terms of Jesus Christ is a king, and he's putting down all other rulers. And where I want to dis- disagree with Stephen when he talks about having a Caesar-like individual that we can, you know, who's a, a great man and a powerful man, all this sort of stuff, is we have that in Jesus. So if we were there 2,000 years ago in the Roman Empire, and we're taking on Rome, that's what prayer is about. That's what preaching is about. That's what the church in the early uh, Roman Empire are doing for the first three centuries. What they are doing is basically proclaiming Jesus Lord against the Roman Empire, and they conquered it. Now, I'm not against the idea that the Lord raised up a Constantine and ended up, you know, he legalized Christianity. I can't remember who the next emperor was, but he made it the official religion of the Roman Empire. So I have no qualms with the Lord raising people up to do those things. But within that, the idea that we need that, I would just say as Christians, what we need is faith in our emperor, faith in our king, our ruler. He's the one who will put down rules. And within that, he raises up uh, world leaders and everything else. So we shouldn't necessarily fret that. And this ends up tying into preterism from this standpoint, that all the the gospel of Matthew is about, as I kind of mentioned earlier, is how the, the Israel has become Babylonian. Israel has become rebellious. Israel has become destructive. And What's going to happen to them is, therefore, they're going to be destroyed. That's what's going to happen uh, to Jerusalem, and that's uh, what, what Matthew's argument is in chapter 23 and chapter 24. And how this ends up tying into Jim Hamilton and preterism in this generation is, is basically this concept. So when you read Matthew chapter 23 and you read Matthew chapter 24, Jesus says twice, once in 23, once in 24, all of this will come upon this generation. And so what do we mean by this generation? Uh, I sought to argue that this generation really is those who are standing there. Um, Pretty simple, straightforward understanding of this generation. But Jim Hamilton wants you to understand this generation as being basically a perpetual seed of a serpent. And so to say when when his disciples come to Jesus and they're talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, and that's even like Jim kind of ignores the context of Matthew 24. But again, the disciples' questions – uh, Jesus, Jesus says to him in chapter 2, you see these buildings, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left one stone upon another when all will be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? They're not asking about the destruction of the whole world. They're asking about the destruction of those buildings. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, this generation. And what Jim Hamilton wants it to be, this generation, basically to be the almost like an eternal seed of the serpent. So the seed of the serpent, he's like, this is all seed of the serpent language. And this carries out from the Old Testament all the way down. So he's basically saying there will always be the seed of the serpent until all is fulfilled. But that's not really a meaningful argument in any way. It's basically saying, oh, the wicked will be there until the end. Then the end will come. That doesn't really answer the questions. When when is this going to happen? There will always be bad people around. That's essentially what Jim Hamilton's uh, saying. So what I want to do is play a clip from his Sunday school, listen to this, and I'm going to respond as we go. And I think even if you listen to Jim closely, you realize that what he's saying is kind of self-refuting. So 
Uh, he just got done saying Matthew chapter 23, uh, all the righteous blood will fall upon this generation, that this generation is the seed of the serpent. And then he's uh, picking up his Old Testament context for that at this point. And then now what's, what's, the, what's the background or what's the basis for this? Well, in Genesis chapter 7, verse 1, we read here, Genesis 7, 1, the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. So the gen- there's a flood generation that gets destroyed by the floodwaters. So think about that. When, when Noah is righteous in this generation, is that just in light of the seed of the serpent? Or does it deal with that generation that, as he just says there, that's about to be destroyed by the floodwaters? And if even if you the language of Second Peter three is that the heavens and the earth that then existed were destroyed, and now they're in a new heavens and new earth, or a different heavens and earth than the one that was there when Noah uh, entered the ark, and the heavens and the earth were destroyed. And even the story of Noah's ark is basically the collapse of Genesis chapter 1. So you basically have the creation going back to a, a watery state. Now the earth was formless and void and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the deep. Uh, Noah is basically the one who's like the Spirit of God now hovering on the waters as everything was collapsed in from Genesis 1. And so even on Jim Hamilton's own basis, the idea that this generation is referring to an eternal seed of the serpent is simply not there in Genesis chapter 7, but it's referring to the generation that's about to be destroyed in the flood. And then um, in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 35, Moses says, Not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to give to your fathers. So the generation that rebelled in the wilderness, they're spoken of as this evil generation. We can- and so even again there, this generation, what is it, what's going to happen with that generation? That generation will not enter the promised land. And so again, this generation is not referring to a seed that was there prior to Noah's flood and going to be there well after Noah's flood, it's referring to the generation that will not enter the promised land. And so similarly, in Matthew chapter 23, Matthew chapter 24, that this generation is referring to the generation that that judgment and destruction of Jerusalem is going to come upon. You could go on and on like this. In the Psalms, we find references like Psalm 12, 7, where David says, he says, uh, you, O Lord, will keep them, referring to his words, you will guard us from this generation that's persecuting David forever. Again, even there, this generation is a generation that's persecuting David. Uh, this generation, Matthew chapter 23, Matthew chapter 24, is the one that killed the Son of God. You will keep them, your words. You will guard us from this generation. By contrast, Psalm 14, verse 5, God is with the generation of the righteous. Okay, so the wicked generation that persecutes the people of God is regularly referred in the Old Testament, regularly referred to in the Old Testament as this generation, and then God's people are likewise referred to as this generation. A couple of New Testament texts. Um, Acts chapter 2, verse 40, Peter says on the day of Pentecost, repent and be saved from this generation. Philippians 2, 15, uh, you shine like stars in the midst of a crooked and depraved generation. Okay, so... The, the New Testament authors speak this way. So I'm, I'm proposing that um, th- this reference in Matthew 24, 34, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place, is not a reference to the people alive when Jesus says those words. It's a reference to the seed of the serpent. And, and essentially Jesus is saying the seed of the serpent is going to persist and is going to keep right on persecuting Jesus and his people until all these things are accomplished and then the end will come. 
so simply, as you said, look at the, the, the text that he sought to illustrate his point. Genesis chapter 7, Deuteronomy 1. Can't remember what Psalm he appealed to, but also uh, Acts chapter two. Just ask yourself, uh, what generation are they referring to? Uh, just as Roman uh, Genesis seven is referring to this generation that was going to be be uh, destroyed in the flood, so also the generation that would not enter the promised land. Also in Acts chapter two, it's the generation that killed the Son of God. And that's why even in the sermon on the book of Acts. He's like, by the hands, you killed them. And, and part of the problem that's going on all through the book of Acts, if you sit down and read the book of Acts, the, the, the conflict between the disciples and the Jews is you murdered the author of life. And then be like, he's trying to bring his blood upon our ass. That's why you killed them. And so they are seeds of the serpent. There's no doubt about that. John chapter 8 makes that plain. And that is a flipping of the script because the Jews would have thought, oh, wow, we're the, we're the seed of the woman. We're the righteous ones, everything else. And to come along and say, you're the seed of the serpent, that's why they're essentially being killed. So so I can agree with them. They are being devilish. They are performing the actions of the serpent. They're murderers and all that sort of stuff. But the context of this generation is not a reference to an eternal seed of the seed of the serpent, but rather what it's uh, – and, and that kind of spiritual rebellion. But actually what it is actually referring to is still a – generation of people, which is generally 40 years in uh, biblical context. When they came up out of Egypt, they wandered in the desert for 40 years, and all that generation passed. So again, Jesus standing there in AD 33, all authority on heaven and earth is mine. Uh, tell you the truth, this temple's coming down. And, and again, that ties into the whole narrative of the Old Testament. So Jesus, here's how this all intertwines. Jesus is the greater Cyrus. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. Cyrus tells the Israelites to go back to Jerusalem, build the temple. Jesus says, this temple's a den of thieves. It's supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. I'm destroying it. My disciples are going to go into all nations now and bring that temple to every tribe, every tongue, every nation, and we're going to preach the gospel. And so as you're preaching the gospel and as you think about the political and Christian nationalism and all this sort of stuff, like there, even, what is it, uh, Genesis chapter 12, it's clear that God's plan from the beginning is to bless all the nations. So in Genesis 11, when he divides the nations, he calls Abraham, and he's ultimately going to bless all those that bless Abraham, and he will curse those uh, that curse him. And so this, this, this idea of Christian nationalism, to me, in and of itself, depending on how we're defining a nation and depending on how we're going to get there, every Christian, in a sense, should be on board with it. We want people from every tribe, tongue, and nation to be worshiping God. The particulars of what that looks like and how we behave and all that, that's up, I think, to some sort of aspect of missions and debate and all this sort of jazz. The idea that we need a Caesar, I would just say, I just said the part, because Jesus Christ is my Caesar. If I was there 2,000 years ago uh, interacting with Romans, I'd be like, nope, Jesus is my Lord. Jesus is my emperor. Jesus is my king. Uh, within that, I still submit to Caesar. And uh, next week, we, uh, I think I'm going to do a response to Owen Strachan. Strachan? Strachan? I have no idea how to pronounce his name. Um, Owen Stran, I believe, is the proper pronunciation, where he's talking about rendering to Caesar the things that are Caesar. And what I want to look at in that is, yes, we will render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but Jesus' words, they're actually pretty revolutionary, and they've totally been neutered by us, and we just think very little of it. Um, so that's going to be next week. But what I kind of hope to do here um, in this episode is basically lay out the basic idea that uh, you know, strands of Christian nationalism are a little bit wonky. Jesus Christ is Lord and King in this Caesar aspect. He's an emperor. And just as Cyrus was, so Jesus is. And we are going to the nations, and we're, but we're announcing forgiveness. And one other thing I actually want to get into, which I uh, kind of forgot about, 
I think this is where it kind of ties in where I, I feel like I disagree. Like on paper, I don't disagree with the Christian nationalist people that I want Jesus as Lord of everything and I want a Christian culture and all that sort of jazz. Um, but but how we go about it sometimes is I'm just like, I just think I disagree. And I, and I was reading the Westminster Shorter Catechism and the place I disagree, I think, is this. And it says, what offices doth Christ execute as our Redeemer? It says, Christ as our Redeemer executeth the officers of a prophet, of a priest, and of a king both in his estate of humiliation and exaltation. I feel like oftentimes with the political discourse, we jump to this aspect of being kingly, whereas I think Jesus' life is all three of those. He's a prophet, he's a priest, and a king. So any aspect of kingly rule of putting down our enemies is um, oftentimes just a one of service. And so question 24 says this, how does uh, how doth Christ execute the office of a prophet? Christ executeth the office of a prophet and revealing to us by his word, and spirit, the will of God for our salvation. Has he executed the office of a priest? By he Christ executeth the office of a priest in his once offering up of himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God, and in making continual intercession for us. Has he executed the office of a king? Christ executeth the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his enemies and our enemies. So as we think through Christian nationalism, Jesus Christ is our king. And how does he execute that office? He subdues uh, subdues us to him. He rules and defends us, and in restraining and conquering all his enemies and our enemies. And so we need to take truly to heart that kingship of Christ as we go and preach the gospel all over the world, as we share the gospel, as we invite people into our home, as we take political uh, stances and everything else. I, I do think we need to keep Jesus front and center. And I, I, oftentimes when I see the Christian national debate, it's almost like Christianity is the limiting concept that enables us to have a standard, by what standard? A standard or a norm that we can argue against more so than really is pressing his crown rights into every nook and cranny of the cosmos. Because the minute you go to do that, uh, you realize that he subdued you. How did he subdue you? And we just need to keep all of that stuff front and center. So that's this episode of the Campus Reach Podcast. If you have any questions, comments, demands, rebukes, exhortations, feel free to reach out to me, Keith at campuspreacher.com. You can find me campuspreacher.com as well. Also Campus Preacher on Instagram and Campus Evangel on Twitter. Lord bless you. Keep you. Talk to you next week.